Hello, everyone. Welcome to See the Invisible, Living with an Invisible or Rare Disease. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate the opportunity to share my experiences and hope that you do get something out of this podcast. This week has been a tough week as far as management of my illness. Um, The immunologist that I saw before I got the first dose of the COVID vaccine said that I should not take some of my normal medication because it could actually negate the effects of the vaccine. And I also had to move my infusion back um, to at least two weeks after I had the vaccine dose. So I followed those instructions. Um, He did warn me that I could get a flare-up as a reaction Um, But that was overall better than getting COVID. So after the delayed infusion and not taking my normal medication, I am hurting a lot. Um, I have my infusion actually tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to it. I know that a lot of people would not like to have an IV line and be stuck to it for a couple of hours while a whole bunch of overpriced medication runs into them, surrounded by strangers and stuck in a chair. But everything has been hurting. So I'm not really sure if it's from a flare up or results or side effects of the vaccine. Um, I find it more likely that it's a result of not um, being able to take my normal medication. But I've also been planning my aunt's funeral services. Um, I should probably say memorial services. Um, She didn't have any children and her stepson passed away a few years ago. Her husband, my Uncle Tom, won't be able to make it to the services either as he's had some strokes. So I've been having to try to deal with the insurance, staying in touch with the director. Um, He helped with my mom's services, so it helps that I know him. Um, My aunt, though, um, during my mom's services, she became a little impatient and she yelled at him. Normally, she's a very sweet and loving woman. She baked cookies for a vacation Bible school um, at a couple of different churches throughout her life. Um, She helped with Easter eggs at both churches. And at one of the churches, helped to assemble the monthly monthly newsletters. She opened her home to family when they most needed it, and she loved everybody with all of her heart. Also, though, if she did not get her way when she wanted it, you heard about it. So going back to the funeral director, um, you know, apparently he wasn't moving fast enough and um, she was yelling at him. But two and a half years later, you know, he remembers us, but he's very helpful as ever, professional, and I'm glad it's someone that I feel comfortable working with. I'm looking at my phone and not erasing some of her last voicemails. I accidentally erased the last one that my mother sent, and I wish I had it. So I'm being very cautious to make sure I keep the one of my aunt. Now, going on to today's actual episode, before I get started, I always want to give my disclaimer that I am in no way a medical insurance or legal expert. If you have any questions in those areas, please be sure that you contact a specialist in that field. I will discuss topics on articles that I have found on publicly accessible means. Any opinion discussed is based on my experiences and my understanding of that particular topic and how it pertains to my life with my illness. 
It is not meant to and should not be used for any medical advice. That does sound a little different than probably my previous disclosures. I just wanted it to be more all-encompassing, um, you know, just as an understanding that I'm not, you know, a doctor or nurse or you know, someone who deals with insurance all the time. So the topic for today, well, I really didn't think that I would have a topic. I didn't want to cover anything related to COVID because I feel that a lot of my episodes end up discussing that to some extent. And there is more to rare and or invisible diseases than just trying to stay safe in the time of COVID. But as I searched through articles and reviewed a few different websites, three of the first five articles that I saw alluded to the same thing. And all of these things tied together. That the cost of treating rare diseases is expensive without many viable options for a lot of us, but that the world of COVID research is also changing how we research or how the medical community researches and how it's seen, especially towards research for orphan diseases. Um, just, to just to define an orphan disease, um, it's a disease that has not been adopted by the pharmaceutical industry because it provides little financial incentive for the private sector to make and market new medications to treat or prevent it. This definition came from medicinenet.com and of course, any quotes or any information that I glean from any articles or papers, I'll make sure that they're linked in the description of the podcast. Unfortunately, we know that much of the world runs on money, and healthcare is a big part of that world. Whether or not we agree with that fact, it is just that, a fact. In order to provide some incentive for these pharmaceutical companies, the Orphan Drug Act of 1983 was passed, but in some ways it's still driven by money. Those that research and develop these drugs, um, they receive reduced taxes, so they do have that incentive to do the research. They also have what was called market exclusivity so that they can only produce the medication themselves. Um, it didn't have a clear definition in the article whether that um, exclusive distribution was for a certain amount of time or if it was continuous, but basically that gives that one company the incentive to make that medication because they're the only ones who will be able to disperse it. So this act seems to have worked. Prior to this act, the FDA had only approved 38 medications for orphan diseases. But since the inception in 1983, 373 drugs have been approved. Also since then, Japan and the European Union have adopted this act as well. So I'm just going to summarize my thoughts on research, especially in the time of COVID and that the quick necessity of developing a vaccine for COVID changed the way that the medical society looks at orphan diseases, as well as research overall. Um, as I said before, I will link all my sources in the description, but first, as I'm sure we all know, the cost of having any type of illness can be expensive. Having a rare disease when pharmaceutical companies and other researchers have less of a financial incentive to 
try to find treatment for that disease, we can find that that's even more expensive than other illnesses. Though I have to admit, I have seen even more common drugs soar in price. My, my EpiPens are years old because I can't afford a new one. And I know many people who cannot afford their insulin even. I did find where research was done by an organization called Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. And they released a study um, with surveys that they gathered. And just based on the response rate for the surveys, and it was actually much higher than normal. Um, so they were able, were able to get a lot of good information. But based on the surveys, annually the total cost and impact of a rare disease is around $1 trillion in 2019. It was a little, a little under that at $966 billion. That's with a B. There are 15.5 million people in the U.S. that have some type of rare um, disease. And you know, that puts, in the terms of this study, a total economic burden of $966 billion for that year. That's actually $600 billion more than what was estimated for diabetes. Now, across the nation, 34 million Americans have diabetes. So that's more than twice the number of people that have rare illnesses, yet the estimated total cost for the impact of diabetes was $327 billion. So based on my math skills and a calculator, $37 billion divided by $34 million is around $1,088 a year. Now, at first sight, I am skeptical of that figure since I do know people who have to pay $500 per month for insulin. But I guess I also need to recognize that some people are on less expensive medication. But on the other hand, if someone has an illness related to diabetes or needs a procedure such as having ulcers on the limbs, things like that, then I go back to being a little skeptical about that number again. But I guess if someone does not have a lot of extra care needed, I can see where that number could be correct. Now, to do the figure for rare diseases, um, $966 billion divided into 15.5 million is about $62,000 per person. So at first I thought that that's kind of high, but after I sat back and calculated everything, it actually was a little low for me. Now, in these studies, they also looked at the impact of things such as direct um, medical treatment. So, you know, doctor's appointments, um, medication, treatments, things like that. Um, but also the impact that it might have had on, say, you know, your paycheck, also on collecting from disability insurance, all of those peripheral costs. And then there's also things such as my husband needing to build a ramp for the house or buying a wheelchair or a walker. And so after I look at all of that, um, the cost of my medication especially, it probably is around 62000 a year, if not more. And if I'm admitted to the hospital, that figure will just grow substantially. There are also other diseases that may cost 10 times more or 10 times less than that. 
So it's just an average. We're averaging out for this. But either way, the cost is pretty substantial. So the struggle in this is making sure that those in charge of both the government organizations that oversee the different aspects of healthcare and those that are looking at the bottom line at pharmaceutical or research companies see that the impact of not properly treating and managing a rare illness is as devastating, if not more so, than some of the other illnesses that are not considered rare. Rare diseases, um, by definition, are rare. Um, then there's about 7,000 different diseases that are classified as rare diseases. So even though not many people may have each of those illnesses, if they're combined, we do make up a huge number. Um, so looking at it financially, that, of course, is having a big impact on the economy. In this study, it was seen that the biggest impact was to productivity. So looking at that, I know there were days that I needed to miss from work, and I either lost pay or had to use a vacation day. There were times that I worked that it was kind of hard to concentrate with either the pain or just kind of feeling, for lack of a better term, foggy. Um, and... You know, another thing that I don't think can be managed or can be measured is the impact of those around us. So when I was not at work, the other na manager needed to pick up my slack. Um, those people who reported directly to me would need then to report to her, which, you know, put a lot of stress on one person. Now, also, um, you know, included in this study were things such as you know, home modifications, which I mentioned regarding the ramp, if there had to be special transport, um, if there were special dietary needs, which I know sometimes I have to look at. And, you know, it's much more expensive than you know, just some of the basic things off the shelf. So there was a lot that was driving this $966 billion price tag. And so with the rare diseases, there are disparities in the number of people who are impacted by each disease. One of the issues that arose was that if the disease has very few patients, then to use the term that the article used, coding comes into play. So it basically means to categorize each disease. Um, this can underestimate the needs of those particular patients. To give you an example, um, about four to five years ago, I was bitten by a tick. I spoke with the nurse at my insurance company because they have a 24-hour nurse line, and she suggested I go to immediate care um, just to see if there's anything that needed to be done, you know, because my immune system's lower, that type of thing. And when I went, I noticed that the actual diagnosis was coded as cellulitis, to the chest because that's where the tick was. And I'm like, what does this mean, cellulitis? I know what that is, and I don't have cellulitis. And she told me that there was a coding for an alligator bite, but not for a tick bite. I know. I'm thinking, unless I live in Florida or Louisiana, why would I really need a code for an alligator bite? But that's what it was, and she had to code it as cellulitis because that was the closest match. So thinking of someone who has a rare disease, and this has come up in my treatment as well, if things are not coded just right, then things can get denied. 
and I deal with this every time I get an infusion. So according to the article, um, it says if, we, if we're missing out on important segments of the population, we just have to do better. Um, so there has been a new regulation submitted called the Speeding Therapy Access Test or STAT Act of 2021, and to quote, which would establish an Institute and Drug Advisory Committee for Rare Diseases within the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The bill, sponsored by a Minnesota senator, is in a Senate committee and has yet to be referred to its counterpart in the House. So most, if not all of us, have been impacted by COVID. For those with any type of chronic illness, our lives have been completely disrupted and they've added to the everyday challenges that we already face. But it also has opened up the discussion about the term underlying conditions or those considered at risk. It now seems that more people are open about their needs and that this has allowed their voices to be heard. While some may be upset by the fact it is something that I have observed. Um, you know, some people may think we should not discuss these, you know, these illnesses, and I've heard feedback on that. But now that we discuss these topics more freely, I think it will allow those who make the decisions to realize we have a louder voice than before and that we need and deserve to have research done both on existing drug therapies that's used for one illness and that could treat another or those medications that can help treat another disease as a brand new medication. So for example, the medication that was approved for my illness last year, um, it was originally used for another disease, but frankly, a lot of the underlying conditions are the same in both illnesses. So it had been approved then for the illness that I have. So looking at everything, um, you know, all of the articles, as I stated before, healthcare runs on money. And one of the advances in healthcare research has been in genetic information. So um, throughout some of this next part especially, I may be reading direct, direct quotes from the articles because there are you know, a lot of terms that may be used that really wouldn't sound right out of context. So I'll kind of read it and then give a summary or an opinion on that. slow to share the information. My, this is my thought. It's that, of course, um, this is being done to hold on to valuable information so that they can be the first to produce the new drug to treat a rare disease or make some type of groundbreaking discovery about that illness. So according to the article, quote, as the next major step on the roadmap, starting in January 2023, the agency will adopt its, adopt its final NIH policy for data management and sharing, updating the previous policy requiring all NIH grant applicants to put a data management and sharing plan into their grant proposals and underlining an expectation that researchers will maximize appropriate data sharing when developing sharing plans. Notably, this policy allows for researchers to allocate part of their budgets toward data curation, storage, and sharing through data repositories, such as the Rare Disease Cures Accelerator Data and Analytics Platform, or RDCA-DAP. 
Meanwhile, collaborators are piloting creative solutions to long-standing challenges propelled by the success of recent novel research initiatives to battle COVID, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and cancer. Um, so first, I'm sorry if I stumbled over some of those words. I actually had dental work done today and some of the numbness is just wearing off. Um, so my thought on this is that, yes, I know this sounds very technical. I actually emailed the source of the article to find out if any of um, the articles or information that they have may be available without using so much medical jargon. And if they are able to provide anything, I'll put that into the description of the podcast. But what I feel this means is that in 2023, those who expect to use grants from the NIH will need to share information and include the budgeting for finding, storing, and sharing that information. In an imaginary world, I would wish that everybody would just put each other's well-being above all else because then we wouldn't need these regulations. But here we are. NIH Director Francis Collins told the NIH Rare Disease Day attendees, um, this was back in February, that the key to curing a rare disease was, quote, putting partnerships into practice, unquote, end quote. By working together and sharing the knowledge and collaborating, we can achieve faster diagnosis and better treatment for rare diseases. And I apologize, it started another quote, so I'm ending the quote here. So to me, this means the diagnosis part is what hits me the hardest. In my previous episodes about the journey to my diagnosis, I found it was a real struggle. And while I passed along from doctor to doctor and explained each one of my symptoms over and over again, I kept being sent to specialists so that each one of my symptoms was looked at individually with absolutely no collaboration. Even when I told one doctor that I was seeing other doctors for these other different reasons. But running just these basic tests, there wasn't any major money at stake and so, you know, I, they just didn't bring in any other doctors other than just these few specialists. Um, and maybe if each doctor had spoken with each other in a little bit more of an extensive manner, it would have taken less time and would have put a lot less stress on the medical system. You know, my individual cost for diagnosis is a small amount in a big pond. But if you look at the total spent every year, if each person has to have all these tests done before it's recognized that it might be a rare disease, those amounts will make a substantial impact. So what would Okay, so I know this may not be the same situation for everyone, but I think it may apply to most people. There were cases that I would normally have seen a doctor in person, but both my primary care physician and my specialist had said not to go to the ER or immediate care unless it was life-threatening. So there were two instances where I didn't think that I got the treatment that I needed because I did use telemedicine 
but the alternative was to go out to a medical facility. And at the time, we were still learning about COVID. So to a lot of people, it was a time of fear. And I was leery myself. But eventually, I got everything taken care of. Now, the National Organization for Rare Diseases reported um, about a survey that 95% of the responders said that um, COVID had affected their long-term health and well-being, um, along with their immediate health. Out of those, 74% had missed an appointment, um, at least one because of the pandemic. 40% had lost um, some type of income, and 29% actually lost their job. So some of those people ended up losing their health insurance as well. Now, almost all of the people who responded to the survey, about 98%, were worried about themselves or someone else that they knew in the pandemic. Um, these concerns could be just from you know, either not having their caregiver or someone who helps them accompany them on a doctor's visit. If a caregiver had someone who was nonverbal, would they be able to communicate effectively? And in some cases, um, transfusions or chemotherapy were stopped. Uh, I know with mine, it was not stopped, which I was actually surprised at early on. But afterwards, I realized if they stopped it, we would have more flare-ups and they would have to be playing catch-up to try to get everybody in at certain amounts of time. So the way it can be looked at in the future is actually touching back to what I've been speaking about the past couple of weeks, technology. Um, I did find this interesting. Um, some caregivers reported to the NIH National Institute of Health that there needed to be continuous research and funding to look at tech for some type of telemedicine or telehealth, as well as other type of technology, so that we could try not to have to go into the office as much. Um, this would help both the caregiver and the patient because I know when I was working, I'd have to re rearrange schedules, work 10-hour um, days to make up time, things like that, whereas having some type of telemedicine, I could have just done it during my lunch. Also takes the pressure off of the caregiver for that same reason. Um, they don't have to schedule around work or things like that. Um, now, I live in a rural area, and I'm actually pretty fortunate in that I live in the town where there is a hospital. Um, in some cases, we might have to drive 45 minutes to get to a hospital if you lived in a different town. So along with having the hospital, there are more um, doctor's offices. So you know, if there's an emergency, I could be at the hospital in a matter of a few minutes. Um, I have access to the specialists that I need, but I have been referred to other specialists that are two hours or more away, depending on traffic, in a busy urban area that I'm not familiar with. They have one-way streets, which they're very narrow and can be pretty intimidating if you're not familiar with the area. Now, I have lived in some parts of New York, um, so comparatively, it's not that bad. But at the same time, it takes a lot of time as well as taking a complete day off work just to be able to go there. So having some type of increased technology to a telemedicine or telehealth, um, it would let those who don't necessarily have access to specialists be able to do so.
Um, I mean, honestly, I'd love to be able to see a specialist at the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic, but there would be no way possible that I could get there. Um, now, for the next couple of um, points, I'm going to refer to a um, Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development report, um, and it was about cl clinical trials. And I will also refer back to um, just some experiences myself, um, things I've actually observed on television shows, like actual dramas, which I know they're dramas, but I actually have found out a few things from them because I look it up afterwards. But to look at the study, 55% um, of active ongoing clinical trials have transitioned to remote and vir virtual execution models since early spring. And that's a direct quote from that. So this brings up the issue that I don't think many of us probably would have thought of. I actually saw this in a, you know, like I said, a recent episode of a medical drama. When clinical trials take place in a certain area, the research will reflect the demographics of that area. So looking at my family history and knowing about some other illnesses, genetically, there are certain illnesses that have a higher percentage of affecting those in different ethnicities. Um, what I learned recently is that a baseline reading for one race or ethnicity may not be the same for others. So things such as heart rate, things like that might be different from one demographic to another. So having remote clinical trials will allow there to be a wider base of information and so that there can be a correlation between different medica medications and how they affect those of different ethnicities or those with a different genetic makeup. So recently I did actually um, send my DNA to 23andMe and I did so because I wanted to both find out more about my ancestry and also be able to take the surveys on genetic research that they have there. You know, I was always told that my condition was not genetic, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so what I learned was that where primarily I had European ancestry, about 6% was sub-Saharan African, and there was about a 1% of Asian ancestry. So my sister, who had the autoimmune disease, um, was seen visually as Caucasian. At her diagnosis, um, the doctor said to her how rare it was for her to have this illness, as it was, you know, specifically, usually um, for someone of African-American heritage. So she was um, biologically my half-sister, but you know, going through daily life, we never really made that distinction. But now, um, you know, since she has passed, I don't know which parent carried that ethnicity. And I can't really say for sure um, if or what genetic makeup fell into the same as mine. But if it was similar to mine, then her diagnosis would make more sense and bring attention, bringing attention to this could help further the ease of diagnosis. So that you know, later on, if, you know, someone is having symptoms of one illness, but it's usually in one ethnicity, why not look into the genetic aspect in order to try to, you know, find a solution earlier rather than later? 
So to me, what I found out in my report, it actually brings clarity to one question that I had had during my sister's diagnosis. Now, you know, I mentioned the TV dramas on one from actually some years ago. It's no longer on TV. I learned about how to track the progression of cellulitis because I would get that. And it's you know, putting a permanent marker at the red area and the time to see how quickly it progresses. So when you see the doctor, they can make that comparison. So that was actually pretty useful. Um, my illness was actually recently mentioned on another show. Um, this particular show took place over more than one episode. And as I'm watching the first episode that she was on, I was like saying, that's Stills disease. Sounds just like me. And before I got to chan the chance to watch the other episode, um, I had it DVR'd. I saw in my support group, people were saying that she eventually was diagnosed with the same illness we have. So, you know, again, maybe looking at genetic aspects again too. my sister having an autoimmune disease and I have an autoimmune disease. Just what are those factors? Are there surveys that we can take? Is there information that we can give to hopefully help the diagnoses be easier in the future? So in regards to, you know, having decentralized um, clinical trials, an investigator called Ken Getz wrote in a report that, among other benefits, decentralized trials have provided increased convenience and minimized coronavirus transmission risk for study volunteers while offering drug developers potentially lower costs and faster access to scientific and operating data. So looking at the information that he just stated, um, you know, we have benefits because we're not having to go into any place where we might be, um, you know, impacted or come in contact with coronavirus. And on the end of those doing the research, they're getting a much broader base of people to, you know, study from, which is always, always a good thing. So in agreement with what he further says that what rare disease patients are overwhelmingly looking for is a cure. And I agree with that, but I also want to add that not necessarily a cure, but even ways to prevent certain things, um, such as my illness did not come into light until I was an adult. So were there things that you can check when you're younger and see if there's certain things that might trigger the illness to begin? So being proactive would be an even better step than having the cure. Um, that might be years and years and years down the road and not even in my generation. But you know, with all the advances of genetic study, I do kind of hope at some point um, we get to that. So... I just wanted to end, it with, end with a little bit of information. Um, in the U.S., a rare disease is one that affects fewer than 200,000 people. So, you know, as I said, there's about 7,000 diseases that have the designation of rare disease. So, you know, it's very hard looking at that number to, you know, think that in one in 200,000 people may have an illness and that's considered rare but there are 7,000 out there. Looking um, further into some things, when 
it's fewer than 200,000 people. It could literally be one or two people in the United States that might have it. So looking at all those figures, you know, it's more than, um, or a rare disease affects more than 25 million Americans total. And more or about 90% of these rare diseases have no FDA-approved treatment. To quote um, just a few more stats, the researchers examined why the majority, which is 394 of the orphan products, were not eligible for generic or biosimilar competition. They found that 80% of orphan products were protected from competition due to a patent life of the product. 20% were protected because of orphan drug exclusivity. Notably, 22% of all orphan products had patent protections lasting more than 20 years, which, again, this part kind of explains some things in that I've looked up some of my more expensive medication and found that it's been out for decades, yet there is no generic, and it ends up costing thousands and thousands of dollars. So... You know, the Orphan Drug Act did make, um, you know, the, it did bring to the attention that rare diseases need to have research and, you know, medication that's formulated either just for that particular disease or finding another medication that's already in use and seeing how it can be used for a different disease. So if I look at 90, or we look at 90%, or 9 out of 10, of uh, these illnesses do not have an FDA-approved treatment, you know, how are people getting adequately treated? So for my illness, pretty much the individual symptoms are being, um, are being treated. And while it does get to some of the core of why, you know, I'm having those symptoms, it's still also very disheartening pretty much to be told that you know, your illness isn't, or I guess what I'm trying to say is not necessarily being directly told, but it feels like, like we're being told that your illness is not worth doing the research for. And while granted, when illnesses affect hundreds of thousands of people, yes, I can see the urgency, but finding ways to adapt that technology to affect the those with the rare diseases. That's what's being done in some cases right now, adapting technology to have the telehealth, telemedicine, clinical trials, which is so important for those who have rare illnesses. Being able to have those studies, you know, span across the country or even the world so that you have a good cross-section of people and diverse backgrounds so that it can become apparent if you know, one section of people, depending on, you know, where they live or possibly genetic makeup, whatever the case may be, if they're more prone to a certain rare disease than another, that may lead to a cure and then later down the road, possibly prevention. And that's what I'm really hoping these steps towards, um, you know, technology, as well as the recognition that, you know, different ethnicities um, different areas where you live may impact your actual treatment, you know, that's a great recognition so that, you know, we can possibly 
make connections earlier rather than later to get a diagnosis. So this did go a little bit longer than I anticipated, but um, I did find the articles rather interesting. Like I said, if I do get any emails regarding um, some other information that is not quite so technical in the terminology that it uses, I will make sure to link it in the description. Um, thank you for listening to me um, go on about this topic for so long. It really does fascinate me in a lot of ways um, how, you know, first things adapted so quickly to COVID, um, whether it was adjusting work from home and remote working to the fact that almost instantly it felt like we went to telehealth and I, you know, had a telehealth appointment within a week of everything shutting down. I think it was even closer to three days. So you know, it was a very quick response time. And as there's more recognition of certain things, um, certain triggers and studies being done, I know specifically for mine being an auto-inflammatory, I've heard that some children who've recovered from COVID get some type of auto-inflammatory illness. Um, you know, just seeing those connections that would help the doctors, you know, figure out what's going on earlier rather than later. But, you know, then possibly seeing is there a connection between these um, children so that we can maybe help prevent it in any other children who happen to recover from COVID. So I am going to end here for the week. Um, again, I appreciate, you know, anyone who you know, comes to the podcast, who gives me a chance to, you know, kind of share my thoughts. Um, you know, I'll be looking for different types of topics. This, um, you know, just happened to come across when I was doing some searches on some keywords and just really felt that it, you know, was important and that in some ways it tied back to what I was talking about the last couple of weeks. So if you do have any ideas for topics or want to contact me, my email and information is in the description. Um, you know, if you get a chance to share the podcast or if you use Apple um, Podcasts, if you leave a review, that helps as far as making the podcast more easily searched for. Um, so, you know, I'm just... You know, hoping that even if a little bit of information helps someone, it, you know, I hope that that information can get to them. So I hope that everyone has a good rest of your week. If you do get a chance to listen to another podcast that I did called Danger in Delaware, it's not really true crime, but it's about dangers in Delaware, which can be crime. It can be natural disasters, but I like studying things and you know, kind of taking them apart and putting them back together. So it's kind of a wide base of what I'll be discussing. Um, but it does help, you know, me stay active, at least my mind stay a little bit active, even though I can't be as physically active. So um, again, hope you all have a great week and I will talk to you next week. Bye.